0: Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Hello, everyone. Today, I am so excited to kick off season three with the incomparable Paul Graywall. Paul is currently the chief legal officer at Coinbase, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange that just went public in April at a valuation of $65 billion. Prior to Coinbase, he was no stranger to the world of law and tech, serving as vice president and deputy general counsel at Facebook. Paul began his career as an intellectual property attorney and eventually as a U.S. magistrate judge for the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. He was on the bench for six years. Paul holds a degree in civil and environmental engineering from MIT and a JD from U. Chicago. And in case you aren't already impressed, he has numerous accolades to his name, including being named a best lawyer under 40 and having served as the president of the South Asian Bar Association. Not to mention, during his judge service, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts appointed him to the Magistrate Judge Education Committee. Welcome to Trailblazers, Paul.
1: Hey, thanks, Timmy. The thrill is actually mine. I'm super excited to do this.
0: Exciting. So thrilled to have you. And I'm going to start with a bit of what I consider a hard-hitting question.
1: All right, let's go right to it.
0: (laughs) I want to know, when did you decide that you wanted to be a lawyer?
1: Oh, I had vague notions of wanting to be a lawyer going all the way back to not just high school and middle school, but even grade school. Now, I didn't actually know what lawyers did (laughs) or what it would actually would be like to be a lawyer, having had no lawyers in my family and not really knowing any lawyers growing up like a lot of South Asian kids, certainly at that time here in the United States. But some vague notion of wanting to practice law entered my brain at some point early on in the journey. And then over time, I think I refined that a little bit, even though I'm still trying to figure some things out 25 (laughs) years into the practice.
0: Wow, super, super interesting. And obviously, over the course of your law career thus far, you've traversed all these different paths. But what really stood out to me in your story is that you did the classic route or what I think is considered the classic route, the judicial clerkship, the corporate law gig, judge service. And then he took a left turn into tech. What inspired that move? Was that always the plan?
1: Oh, I can absolutely say with certainty, it was not always the plan. Anyone (laughs) who had a plan to start out in private practice, move on to the bench, and then leave the bench and go to tech, I think would have to be slightly delusional. For me, coming to the world of tech was actually quite natural. I studied engineering as an undergraduate, even after my clerkships and in my private practice life most of my clients were tech companies. Most yep. of the cases that I tried in federal trial courts and appellate courts all over the country were technology cases. So in a lot of ways, technology was coming home for me. Even as a judge in the Northern District of California, I presided over and tried a lot of very technology intensive cases. So for me, in a lot of ways, it was a natural progression, even if the order of that progression wasn't something I think any person with a right mind would have mapped out in advance.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And how did that process actually come about? You joined Facebook in 2016. What was the path to getting there?
1: Yeah, so to understand how I got to Facebook, I I think it's helpful to understand life before Facebook. Yep. As you mentioned, I was a partner at a major law firm trying technology cases for well over a decade before I was appointed to the Northern District Bench in 2010, the North District California bench. And I was relatively young when I was put on the court. I was under 40. And I went on the bench with no preconception, no sort of fixed notion that I would serve for the rest of my career, even though most judges, certainly most judges in the federal courts, tend to view a judgeship as a capstone event. And so in twenty sixteen, even as I was continuing to enjoy the privilege and the honor of of serving as a judge, but also just the great fun of being in a courthouse every day. When I heard about, through some friends, the opportunity at Facebook to come lead a global litigation team and really scale an organization in a way that I had never done before and apply a lot of the lessons that I had learned over, at that point, 15 or more years of practice, it was really just too interesting an opportunity for me to say no to. I figured that Whether I succeeded or failed in the corporate world, I would learn a ton. I would get to do a bunch of things with a bunch of people I had never known before that I hadn't ever done before. And I would have some great stories to tell at the end, one way or the other. And all that proved to be true.
0: That's amazing. And you just alluded to this, but it seems like there were natural applications given the region in which you presided during your judge service Can you speak to what those applications were in your day-to-day work at Facebook and potentially even now at Coinbase?
1: Yeah. So as a magistrate judge in a federal district like the Northern District of California, a huge percentage of the issues you deal with are technology-intensive, even if the cases themselves aren't. So for example, one of the most core responsibilities any magistrate judge has in a federal district is to review search warrant applications that the FBI, the DEA, the IRS may be submitting in order to gain access to data to facilitate an investigation. To understand the issues involved in that application, to understand whether or not there was probable cause to either grant the application and issue the warrant or reject it and send it back to the US Attorney's Office, you needed to understand these platforms. And so I spent a lot of time really getting to understand and know how Twitter, Facebook, Google worked in, in in fairly minute detail. At the same time, I was trying patent and copyright cases and helping to mediate and resolve cases like Apple versus Samsung, Google versus Oracle, some pretty big name litigations. And so all of that just exposed me to a ton of the data privacy issues, a ton of the intellectual property issues, a ton of the competition law issues that I would ultimately confront when I went to Facebook, and and even beyond that. And so there were just a lot of subject matter lessons that proved to be quite valuable. There were also a lot of non-subject matter lessons, a lot of lessons in terms of how to deal with people from different backgrounds, how to explain complex topics to people who may be less experienced yep. when it comes to law or technology. So all of those lessons were super valuable. All of them helped me each and every day, and I'm grateful I had that experience.
0: Super, super interesting. And it's so funny because you touched exactly on something that I was curious to ask you about. When you were on the bench, you made a lot of these rulings against big tech companies. And I was reading one of them where I believe a plaintiff had requested a search warrant via Gmail. And you wrote in the public domain that while Google had declared publicly that it tends to challenge these overbroad warrants where people seek access to customer data Mm -hmm. and that they fight it, the reality was that in the time you'd spent on the bench, you had yet to see them undersign any sort of motion of that sort. What was it like going to work in a sector that you'd often been ruling against? Well, the first thing that you
1: learn as a judge in any court is that your job is to apply the law regardless of where the chips fall as a result of that decision. And so I never went... Into any case involving a high tech company, thinking about what that might mean in terms of my reputation or how happy any particular company might be on any given day, because that's not the oath that I took. The oath that I took was to uphold the Constitution and to apply the law impartially. And that's what I tried to do every day. Now, that said, I issued all kinds of rulings as a judge that I think the tech industry was unhappy with. At the same time, I issued plenty of other rulings that I suspect they were much more happy with. It just wasn't relevant to my calculus. And so when I decided to leave public service and enter private life again or reenter private life by joining Facebook, I hope at least that the most important quality that the tech industry took from my service was that I tried to do my best to be impartial and that I wasn't afraid to call balls and strikes and speak truth to power. Yep. Yep when it was necessary. And hopefully that integrity was something that they saw as a positive quality. In fact, I think it was a very important reason why I was selected for the job.
0: Wow. I think that's a really interesting point and perspective because in other professions, when you see someone moving from one job to another, even in terms of career pivots, people are still looking for a baseline set of skills that translate from one job to another most of the time. But it seems like in this case, and it's a testament to the profession, that they're really looking for the core of your character, your integrity, et cetera.
1: I think so. I understand why there is so much public criticism of how companies like Facebook and Google and others operate. And I share many of those concerns and I've expressed a number of those criticisms even publicly. But I think what is often misunderstood is sort of the incentive structure within these complex organizations. The fact of the matter is that these are, in my view, highly dynamic, highly competitive markets in which they compete. And so in order to get to the right answer, in order to make the right decisions, whether it's whether to launch a particular product or service, whether it's to pursue a certain course of action that that may run afoul of certain regulations, whatever the issue may be, it's critical that you have independent thinkers willing to express independent views or else you, you lapse into groupthink. And that's where companies, I think, can get into trouble.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's probably led to the decline of a lot of companies, especially in the tech sphere, if they're not willing to innovate or have people that aren't just yes men coming into the organization.
1: Correct, I think that's right. I think the most important sign or indication of a healthy organization is its capacity and strong interest in bringing in people who may have very different views from people who are already there. I think if you apply that metric or heuristic, you generally can pretty readily identify the companies that are continuing to grow and innovate and develop, and also identify those that stagnate and are much more interested in just protecting an incumbent position.
0: Absolutely. I'm curious, you just, again, alluded to the fact that Some people have a very particular view of tech companies, I think, especially that's developed over the last number of years in the realm of Facebook and Google and others.
1: No question. Did you
0: have any moral qualms about leaving your judge seat and going to work in the tech sphere for those reasons?
1: Moral qualms? No, because the very simple framework I have always applied when considering new opportunities in my career has been, one, first and foremost, the people that I'm working with and for people whose character and integrity I have high confidence in. Now, that doesn't mean that on occasion people that I've worked with haven't made decisions that I disagree with or even have been disappointed in. But I've always focused on character and integrity as the most important quality I'm looking at when trying to figure out whether to make a move or change a direction in my career. The other thing that gave me a lot of confidence was that I had confidence in my own integrity and in my own character, and that if I ever felt like it was being pushed or pulled in a direction I wasn't comfortable with and that wasn't being respected. I would have no trouble walking away because life is short and reputations and memories are long. And I've always tried to keep that in mind as as I've confronted tough situations.
0: Absolutely. So in that vein, we've spoken at a high level about your decision to transition, the tech sphere, broadly speaking. What did the meat of your day-to-day actually look like when you first started at Facebook?
1: Yeah. So what did I actually do? (laughs) And this was, this was the very first question my, my mom and dad asked as well. Yep. <laughs> first and foremost, my job was to run a small but growing organization that was responsible for the litigation and regulatory affairs of the company. When I joined Facebook in mm, June or so of 2016, I inherited a team that was roughly 20 or 25 people, give or take, across all the different offices and parts of the company that touched my world. By the time I left in 2020, that team had grown to something like 250, give or take, maybe close to 300 people. So it had really scaled dramatically over that time as Facebook went from really a darling of American industry that could do no wrong to, in many ways, a pariah that could do no right. And my career at that company really spanned that massive transition, beginning with the election in the fall of 2016, and then moving on through Cambridge Analytica, concerns about teenage mental health, and everything else that we all have read over and over again in the headlines.
0: Yeah, there's certainly been no shortage of scandals in the world of Facebook or tech, broadly speaking. Can you speak to some of those inflection points where you really started to see your work change? I'd be curious to understand whether that played any role in you starting to think that you might leave Facebook.
1: Well, I never thought about leaving as a function of any of the experiences that the company was having or any of the controversies that were surrounding it, in large part because I felt very strongly that for all of the company's missteps and mistakes and screw-ups, let's just call them what they were, (laughs) there was a core group of people whose integrity I continued to believe in. I felt that the team I had assembled that was actually litigating these issues in courts all over the world every day and that was engaging with regulators on these very issues each and every day, was incredibly talented, incredibly high integrity, and frankly, was in a position to direct the company to a better place that was much more powerful and much more impactful than the people on the outside who were raising legitimate concerns, but at the end of the day were you know outside the arena, as Teddy Roosevelt yep. might have put it, rather than inside of it. And I just felt that in a lot of ways, I was having much more of an impact on the trend and direction of the company's reputation and responsibility by continuing to do the day-to-day work that me and my team were asked to take over and lead the charge on. So that's really where I focused my energy and my attention.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Can you speak a little bit to what the start to end process looks like when something as big as Cambridge Analytica happens?
1: Yeah, I, I can speak to it very personally because... You know, in a lot of ways, that was the defining experience for me personally and professionally when I was at Facebook. I still remember very distinctly coming to learn that a university researcher who had been working out of the UK had breached his literal statements to Facebook under oath about what data had been taken from the platform and how it had been used, to the media getting very interested and focused on the issue, to the congressional hearings and other government excitement over the issue that followed that. And then all of the work that the company underwent to try to resolve those issues, invest real resources to make sure that it never happened again, and then make commitments to the FTC and other regulators that we would be held accountable if it didn't work. So it was a sequence and series beginning in the spring of 2018 that continues at the company to this day, but that really dominated the last two and a half years that I spent there.
0: Wow. That's not shocking that it had such a big impact, but still something else to hear it from someone who was actually there. Given that this situation starts to become a dominant part of the conversation going forward, how does your work and in interactions with other teams change on a day to day basis? As in, I imagine that the product roadmap changed and you were probably in dialogue with them and the policy team's mandate somewhat changed and you were in dialogue with them. What did that cadence of interaction look like if there was any?
1: Yeah, so the courtroom proceedings, whether they were class action lawsuits, the congressional hearings, those things tend to attract a lot of attention for good reason when they occur. But the bulk of the work at the company really was happening behind the scenes, out of the spotlight. Day in and day out, and that work involved really every corner of the company, from the product and edge teams that were building new controls to make sure the data that was collected was handled appropriately, yep. to our government relations and policy teams that were responsible for briefing staffers on the Hill and members that raised questions, parliamentarians in legislatures all over the world, and other policymakers, to the finance investor relations teams that were obviously charged with explaining to the market what Facebook was doing to make sure that this wouldn't happen again. So. One of the things that I really loved about my job at Facebook, in addition to just working with an incredibly talented, good group of people, was the fact that on a daily basis, I was touching and really partnering with people across the entire organization
0: yeah,
1: and around the world. And that was tremendously exciting. I learned a ton just working with such bright, talented people. And at the end of the day, I felt like my job mattered because if my team and I did not fulfill our responsibilities, the company would be in a much worse place. And as a result, I think the public would have much less confidence in Facebook's ability to fix these issues and get it right going forward.
0: Absolutely. And I imagine getting to work across these teams having such a high impact in this realm, in the direction of a company is relatively different from your time on the bench. Yeah, you can say that. You got a chance to see both sides. Which one's more fun? Well, Samuel, let me just paint
1: you a picture a bit about (laughs) my life before Facebook and my life at Facebook. So I mentioned at Facebook that by the end, I was leading a team of several hundred people. We were in courtrooms all over the world on any given day. The company itself had grown to probably, I'm going to guess, don't hold me to this, 50,000 or more employees. It was a large, sprawling, complicated beast of an organization. And we were a tech company first and foremost. And so The means of communication were entirely or almost entirely online, 24-7, WhatsApp, Instagram, (laughs) (laughs) messenger, you name it, all firing at me through my phone all at the same time. In contrast, life before Facebook involved my sitting in a literally what was called a chambers, spending most of the day actually in the courtroom wearing a robe (laughs) and being announced as I entered where my deputy would call the courtroom to order and people would stand as I came into the courtroom and laugh at the jokes that I would tell whether they were funny or not. (laughs) And all of that would ultimately conclude with my retiring back to chambers at the end of the day to sit with maybe my two law clerks, my deputy, and maybe one or two interns. So it was a much more of a cloistered existence where my responsibility was to deliberate literally, right? Yeah. read precedents and case law, write very detailed opinions. And so to go from that world to a world of 140 or 280 characters and <laughs> issues and people coming at me from all directions was about as much of a of a shock as I could have possibly engineered. But I loved it. Wow. And I wouldn't have traded it for the world.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So you spend this time at Facebook. You do that for four years. Then Coinbase comes and effectively poaches you. What drew you to the world of highly debated, not entirely regulated land of crypto?
1: Well, crypto was something that I had had a little bit of exposure to while at Facebook because, of course, Facebook launched its Libra stablecoin and initiative during my time there. And anyone who paid any attention will remember that it was not entirely uh, well received. There weren't lots of hugs (laughs) and kisses from central bankers and other regulators all over the world it was a pretty brutal rollout. And yet for me, it was an opportunity, having played some very small part in some of the issues around that, to learn what crypto was and why people were so enthusiastic about it. And that drew me a bit into the world of crypto and a bit down the rabbit hole, as they say. But I I would say that by the time I left Facebook, I was at best a curious and interested observer of the crypto space. I was hardly an expert. And I knew almost nothing about the core legal issues that dominate the industry. But when Coinbase reached out and expressed interest in, in my coming over and serving as the chief legal officer, I started to get really, really excited at the prospect as I threw myself into what crypto was all about. And for me, what was most important, how significant the legal and regulatory issues would be to crypto and Coinbase's success or failure. And ultimately, the thing that was most compelling about the opportunity in addition to another incredible set of people, very strong, I think forward-looking and visionary leadership was just the reality that the work that my team and I would be doing to help bring some calm and some sense of order to the crypto space would really be core to the success or failure of the enterprise. And that wow. was just too alluring, too tempting to turn down. And so once again, I threw caution to the wind and, and jumped into a new opportunity.
0: And you mentioned that you climbed this learning curve because you had experience with Libra. You had this opportunity to come in and innovate to some degree, but at the core, I imagine obviously Facebook and Coinbase both sit within the tech sphere, but they're very different companies. They are. How did you continue climbing that learning curve? How are you doing that still today?
1: Well, the short answer is I'm doing it imperfectly today because it's really, <laughs> really hard. You know, I have found that part of what keeps me excited and motivated even as I'm entering now, as I said, my 25th year of practicing law is that new issues, new people, new conflicts really require new thinking. And so the chance to learn not only a whole new set of technologies, because crypto is very different than social media, which was very different than the constitution and the other things i worked (laughs) on at the court. The, The fact of the matter is that the legal domain surrounding crypto, I think is actually even more challenging in some ways than the technology itself. So how did I do it? First of all, I threw myself into the subject matter, like any good Indian boy does <laughs> when confronted with you know a hard problem, going back to when we were all five years old. But I also was able to do that because I had the confidence, having made a number of these other radical shifts in my career, to know that even if I didn't have all of the answers or really any of the answers on day one, my value, my contribution would come with time, as hopefully I brought to bear Some of these experiences I had had at Facebook at the court as a trial lawyer to a company or for a company that was likely to face many of these same issues, albeit in very different contexts.
0: Wow. I mean, I personally read about crypto a lot and I still feel like I could consume all this information and never truly understand it. And I hope to say that one day I will, but I can't even imagine stepping into the legal part of this world because... It's probably so dynamic because it's still relatively new, and there's yeah. a lot of innovation going on in the space.
1: It's funny to me because the very first thing that I read when I decided that I was serious about this opportunity at Coinbase was, I started with the original white paper that Satoshi wrote. Wow, laying out the fundamental principles of that would become part of Bitcoin. And from there, I started to read, I started to read every tweet, every book, every blog post I could on the first principles that really undergirded how people were thinking about crypto at the time. And then I also, frankly, was very honest with myself and with anybody who I came into contact with in admitting what I didn't know, which was most, mostly everything. And you know, acknowledging my own limitations and reaching out yeah. in that spirit to people who had had more experience, albeit crypto itself was only a, less than a decade old, so there aren't a lot of old timers in crypto, helped establish a certain amount of trust that I wasn't coming in thinking I had the answer to everything, and that I was really genuinely interested in learning from people who had invested time and energy and focus on these topics long before I showed up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in that realm, I'm curious. It sounds like a Facebook year work was a lot more litigation focused, especially as time went on. What is the crux of your role at Coinbase?
1: Well, at Coinbase, we have our fair share of litigation as well. Although I think it would be a stretch to suggest it's anything like the docket that Facebook has today, <laughs> okay, um, all over the world. But we face our fair share of class action litigation and commercial disputes. We also are a, an object of some interest of government regulators and investigators, and that requires us to respond to subpoenas and formal process that we receive from time to time. But the heart of what I'm what I'm trying to do at Coinbase. Is establish a team that itself is growing rapidly on a similar scale and at a similar pace to what I experienced at Facebook, and a culture and principles surrounding that team or imbuing that team that really empower the people that work with me to make their own judgment calls and provide their own advice day in and day out on the range of issues that crypto and Coinbase face. That means a lot of thinking about the right way to get to a regulated state. We've been super clear long before I I arrived, but certainly since I've arrived, that Coinbase welcomes sound regulation. And that's a pretty radical position to take in the world of crypto, given its anti-regulatory yeah. and even anti-government origins. But I think one of the things that I've enjoyed getting to understand and then to help explain and articulate to you know, many regulators and policymakers I'm meeting with is that whatever early ideological leanings certain people have when it came to crypto have evolved massively as this niche technology has emerged as a fundamental financial service for the world. And so getting people to understand that a lot of the early history of crypto is not nearly as relevant to the way things work today. And that at least companies like Coinbase are very interested in developing sound principles that allow us to make rational decisions of, wow. and running our business and expanding our platform is really what I view as the heart of what I'm here to do.
0: Yeah. Do you think that's becoming a common viewpoint across the industry or that's pretty unique to Coinbase?
1: I think it's still too unique to Coinbase. I will put it that way. Okay. I'm eager to see more of our industry accept. And I think we are getting there, but I think okay. there's still a long way to go. The notion that the public, as represented by their elected officials and regulators and and other policymakers, have a right to just know that when they interact with this ecosystem or platform or technology or whatever other buzzword you want to use, that they can rely upon the representations that are being made, that they can act with confidence, and that they can feel secure enough to invest. In growing the world of crypto by their own contributions, whether it's buying a dollar's worth of Bitcoin, whether it's developing an NFT, whatever the case may be, so that things can flourish and that people can act with confidence. And so I think we're getting there. There are still, to be sure, a lot of actors in this industry who instinctively recoil at oversight by government. I understand that. I respect that. And I might even agree with it in large measure. But I've also seen this movie before. And the fact of the matter is that when new disruptive technologies emerge, the empire eventually does strike back and you need to be prepared for that and meet them where they are and give them assurances and then deliver on those assurances so that they don't act rashly and overcorrect and over-prescribe how these technologies should emerge in a way that ultimately kills the baby in the basket.
0: Yeah. It seems almost like the goal is, especially given your experience at Facebook, to enable these institutions, particularly the government and regulators, to be more proactive than reactive so that the outcome ends up being better at the end of the day. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I will say that it's very easy and and even understandable for people to laugh at or even mock the lack of sophistication that many of our policymakers have when it comes to technology. But my experience has been that by and large, and there are obviously exceptions, but by and large, these are good people, smart people trying to figure out something that they've had no exposure to, right? No education in and no daily experience with. And so I view our job, certainly my job, as helping them ascend that curve so that they can acquire the vocabulary, can understand the fundamental frameworks and concepts such that they can engage with these issues in a substantive way. And then to show them that the promises of crypto are not just words or ideas, but that it's actually making a real difference in the real lives of real people and is more than just an asset that is, is available for speculation and in very rare cases, a fraud or abuse. So I think it's all about getting people comfortable yep. with what can be very challenging and hard. And that's what I've been doing as a trial lawyer, as a judge or in private practice for some time. And so it's something that uh, I continue to enjoy.
0: No, I I think that makes a ton of sense and is actually a very empathetic viewpoint that people don't tend to have towards policymakers as it relates to pacing legislation with innovation. Do you think part of that empathy stems from the fact that you came from that world to some degree?
1: I think that's probably fair. I mean, the fact of the matter is, as a federal magistrate judge on any given day in my one chambers in my one courthouse, I was responsible for hundreds upon hundreds of disputes. Now, they all weren't showing up in my courtroom at the same time, or else I would have absolutely <laughs> gone totally gray and not just partially gray, as you can see. <laughs> but I, I really did come to appreciate the volume and complexity of the issues that we put to our elected officials and to our government leaders. And at the same time, I got to know a lot of these folks quite well and personally, and to this day, consider many of them to be close friends. I walked a mile in their shoes, in other words, right? Yep. And so I think having done that, I, I undoubtedly have perhaps a, you know, a greater appreciation for what they struggle with each day than I would have otherwise. But I think I had this perspective even before I went to the court, because the fact of the matter is that you know, when I was trying cases, a patent dispute, for example, involving network intrusion detection software, no matter what technology or background I may have had or been familiar with, I was learning something new for the very first time, and I had to learn how to break down these very complex topics, both legally and technically for very lay audiences, judges in some cases, juries and others. And so when you have been charged with the responsibility of explaining to 12 regular citizens off the street who are there by order of the court, not for any other reason than they have to be, (laughs) what your dispute is about, why it matters, how to think about these problems and why they should care You have to develop a certain empathy that the people that you're interacting with aren't dumb. They're not lazy. They're not stupid. They're not even hostile. They want to do their jobs by and large, whether you're talking about jurors, judges, regulators, or legislators, but you have to give them the tools to work with. Yep. And if you don't bring those tools to the exercise, they will use their own frameworks, their own sense of right and wrong, their own morality constructs in ways that may lead to results that are much less predictable.
0: Wow. I appreciate you sharing that because the educational aspect of being a lawyer is not something that I'd really considered before, but it makes sense because they often hold this role of being a mediator and liaison, and my sister is a lawyer and I I've, I've seen mm-hmm. her go about it in this way where she will really work to explain something in layman's terms so that a person can grasp it in a dispute or something else of that sort can be solved. Sure. You've really carved out your career in a beautiful way. And I know it was unintentional, but you spent the early parts of it as an intellectual property lawyer in the tech sphere. Then you became a magistrate judge in Northern California dealing with a lot of this technology. And then you transitioned to this role at Facebook. Is this how you envisioned your career going? Is this how you were trying to set yourself up?
1: I really didn't. You know, I mentioned earlier that I had a vague notion of what being a lawyer was like. And so that- was sort of the sum total of my analysis when I decided to go to law school and enter the profession. But beyond that, I've always just tried to figure out really number 1, where do I feel like I get to learn and I get to grow above all other things? And the practice areas and types of cases and types of roles that you you described for my career all ultimately were in service of that objective, right? I just yep. I wanted to continue to feel like I was evolving and growing not just as a lawyer, not just as an intellectual person, but As a human. And one of the most important privileges I earned as a judge, for example, wasn't the fact that I was involved in some of these fancy cases with lots of fancy lawyers. It was the fact that on any given day, I not only worked with extremely intelligent and articulate counsel and others, law clerks to be sure, but I also got to work with people from the widest spectrum of the community who would come into my courtroom every day, whether as defendants, whether as witnesses, victims, or as jurors. And I just relished that opportunity to interact with a billionaire um, one minute and a person worth 10 cents on the other who took two buses to get to my courthouse on time and everybody in between. And it was a real exercise in humility and a real lesson in humanity that I got to experience each and every day. And, And as it turned out, it was a nice bonus that it gave me some understanding of what all of us as people need to have in order to make good decisions and do the right thing and so i'm very grateful that i was given that opportunity
0: absolutely i really love that and admire that perspective and like i said i think it's certainly one unprecedented not just on this podcast but in the broader legal sphere as it relates to people who aren't in the field i want to take a step back and speak a little bit more about your work in tech and specifically at coinbase i mean you've worked closely with some of the most foremost personalities in tech, building these large teams, working with the Brian Armstrongs of the world. What has that been like? Do you have any memorable anecdotes?
1: Well, working at Coinbase in particular, been here now for about a year, and I've been very fortunate that I chose to join Coinbase and join crypto at the beginning of what some might argue has been the most exciting year in its history, right? Yes, And so Brian has been really just a singular leader for the company and for the industry and getting to see how he has not only accepted that responsibility, but really embraced it has been something that I've been really impressed by and and proud of. Just to share one story, a few months ago, Brian tweeted out about a trip that he and I took to Washington to meet with certain policymakers. And this was not Brian's first visit to DC, but it It was an important one, and certainly our first time as together, particularly in the COVID era, to actually sit down face to face across from a number of policymakers and make the case for crypto and why we believe we can ultimately help the government and help society solve a lot of important problems. Coinbase is like a lot of tech companies; we tend to be very casual in our style and culture, even (laughs) if we are very intense in our work ethic. And so, I realized as we were flying across the country and as we were walking up to the Capitol for our very first meeting. That I'd never actually reminded my chief executive officer that he did need to wear a tie, <laughs> a <jacket. laughs> and suddenly all of the different possibilities of solving that problem raced into my That's mind. Could wear my jacket? How far <laughs> away was the nearest banana republic? all of these things were kind of like. Occurring to me in warp speed, and, and then Brian pulled up and right on cue. He was dressed immaculately and ready to go, and he looked as if he were the junior senator from the great state of California. Wow! So that was a lot of fun. That's hilarious. but I've been I've been blessed to work with a number, as you mentioned, of, of great tech leaders. Certainly, I would put Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg at the top of that list as well. It's just been part of the journey that I found myself on that I never would have imagined when I started off in law school 28 years ago.
0: Wow! Wow! I love that story and it's hilarious and just an amazing, amazing experience it seems like you've had. You know, in September 2020, which is when you joined Coinbase, it was also around the time that Brian published the blog post, actively discouraging political discussions at work. Yes. You know, shortly after they offered severance packages to anyone who wanted to leave as a result and a number of employees exited. What were your thoughts on the matter, especially as someone that was coming into the company at that time?
1: Yeah, I was just a couple days in when all that happened. And the most um, lasting impression I have of that experience, quite honestly, is that I think Brian and Coinbase as a whole did something very brave. People can disagree and they have had every opportunity and taken every opportunity online and elsewhere to voice those disagreements with the substance of what he had to say and the approach that Coinbase elected to take, which was To focus on the mission of the company and to engage in political discourse only where it related to that mission, which tends to be where crypto related issues are at stake. The thing I admired about Coinbase's approach and Brian's view in particular was that, in contrast to almost every other leader in industry up until that point, Brian first and foremost published what he thought. He put out not just to employees, but to the world how he felt about these issues and was very much focused on being as transparent as possible about what the culture at Coinbase was, would continue to be, and how it would be nurtured. And so what I admired about that, Simi, as much as anything else was, he gave employees and the company gave employees, both current and future, absolute clarity about what they would be part of and what the implications of that might be. Yeah. and. I would suggest ever so gently that a lot of other business leaders were more than happy to talk and talk and talk about how they viewed culture, but very few were willing to put it in writing and commit to it in a way that was so public and frankly, so easy to hold someone accountable if they fell short of those ideals. So that's the impression that stuck with me as much as anything. And as for the results of the effects of it, I will tell you that a handful of employees chose to leave. Almost everyone stayed and we've grown and we've more than doubled since then. And so the market yep. has sort of spoken that while while others may choose and prefer a different environment in which to ply their trade and God bless, they are more than welcome to go do that. Plenty of other people are saying, thank you, Coinbase. And thank you, Brian, for creating an environment where I get to focus on my work and my talent and my merit and not get dragged into discussions that aren't directly relevant to the mission of the organization. And that's really how I've chosen to, to take this. And, and I think it's something that is fairly unique and fairly distinct in every industry, certainly in tech.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is gonna become a major talking point in case study going forward because there's been a bit of a status quo operation on how to handle political engagement and discussions and just that sort of arm of organizations. And I think to some degree, this is gonna set up a new model despite all the criticism that it received. And to your to your point, a lot of people pointed out the fact that it, the company has thrived since that decision.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right.
0: Yeah. So fast forward a couple of months in this role, the company IPOs, what was it like from the legal perspective being a part of that process, being a part of that success?
1: What, what was it like? It was busy. Uh, <laughs> Any initial public offering of any type is a watershed event for a company. Yep. Certainly, a company like Coinbase. But in the sort of true or classic Coinbase fashion, it wasn't enough just for us to become a public company, right? We had to become the first real significant crypto company of any type to go out on the out on the market, and we chose to do so in the form of a direct listing, which was at that point and still to this day a relatively novel structure for entering the public markets. Yep. And so. My legal team was very much at the center of that work. We partnered with some incredible colleagues on our finance team and really across the entire company to make that happen. So it was not just the legal team by any stretch that was responsible for that exercise, but it meant that all of those talents that we had accumulated, all of the incredible people that we had managed to recruit to the company were suddenly put to the test in a way that in most places would take years to come yeah. to pass as opposed to months and yeah. we managed to pull it off in large measure and we're very proud of how that ultimately came to pass.
0: Yeah, you should be. It's funny cuz I know a lot of the just public dialogue and discussion around that was the fact that this was a real legitimizing moment for crypto and you know a lot of the naysayers backed off in that moment and and they're back but to some degree it really does offer that sort of validity. Did you have doubts about crypto just coming into this role when you were considering it?
1: No, I didn't because even before I joined the company, I had done my diligence. And yep. certainly since I was at the company, I knew this wasn't some wild-eyed idea or harebrained scheme that had managed to kind of putter along for some time. This was a serious business that was charged with you know serious responsibilities where ultimately, obviously, accountable as a a financial institution for the financial assets of our customers. We take that responsibility extremely seriously. And I knew, and I think the entire leadership team at the company knew that if we did this right, if we went above and beyond in how we drafted our S1, how we crafted our our risk factors, if we pushed innovation, even through what is traditionally viewed as a very traditional process, which is the, the public listing of a company we could establish new standards that would benefit not just Coinbase, but crypto as a whole. And so, you know, there were a lot of little things, Simi, that captured some attention. For example, the fact that on the cover page of our S1, we did not list a headquarters address because Coinbase is a remote first company and we do not actually have a headquarters. That was something we had to get our friends at the SEC comfortable with. And to their great credit, they worked with us to get there. We also happened to list on the cover sheet that all copies of correspondence should be sent, not just the legal team or outside counsel, but to Satoshi as well. And we listed his or its wow. or their wallet address. So little things like that were important to us as markers of the innovation that was taking place. But the real heart of the innovation was, and this is really where I give, our, give full credit to our chief financial officer, her team, was in crafting the narrative of what this company was how we saw ourselves not just in the world of crypto but in the world of financial services more broadly and what we, what our ultimately our, our goals and aspirations were for the long term and telling that story is an incredibly challenging task Absolutely. even when you're selling widgets or petrochemicals <laughs> it's it's especially it's hard not easy. when no when 99.6% of the universe hasn't even heard of crypto or bitcoin let alone understands it
0: yeah wow it's really amazing story, and I like that you've inserted these little tidbits of innovation just even something as small as making sure that Satoshi is listed and the remote first concept. i I appreciate that a ton. I think it speaks to not just the company itself but the innovation that you're really trying to push forward. Your predecessor, Brian Brooks, left Coinbase to become acting Comptroller of the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of Currency, which is a major role. and for him marked a transition back to the public sphere and government, do you ever see yourself making that transition back?
1: Oh, gosh, I have no idea. I mean, I I feel like I am just getting my grounding here at Coinbase after about a year. And so uh, I'm entirely focused on continuing to support and develop and grow my team. There's so much, so much work for us to do and that lies ahead. To make this company a success and make this industry a success, that that's where all my attention is. But I will say that I talk to lots of friends, and old and new, who, who reach out from time to time talking about how they might incorporate public service into the arc of their career in some capacity. And one of the things that I always encourage them to do, because I do want to see more people from the private sector spend at least a portion of their career working in the government, serving the public in some capacity, is to appreciate that these doors... Tend to swing both ways. In a very positive sense, some people tend to look, particularly lawyers, and particularly those who are considering careers in government, at life in the public sector as a final decision. And I hope, you know, my experience and my example can counteract that narrative and and show people that you can do a lot of good in the private sector, you can do a lot of good in the public sector, and there's no reason that you have to make a hard and fast and permanent choice at any point in time.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think that's a key insight, and definitely. A lesson to be learned, hopefully, for the aspiring lawyers listening to this right now. I hope so. One thing I'm curious about, obviously, we're South Asian Trailblazers here, and you were president of the North American South Asian Bar Association and the South Asian Bar of North Northern California. Was. Why did you decide to pursue those roles? How has your identity played a role in your career?
1: The first question is actually pretty easy. You know, I got very interested in getting involved in Saba and then growing the South Asian Bar Association to what it is today, in large part because I saw a need. When I entered law school in 1993 and when I graduated in 1996, there were a very small number of South Asian Americans practicing law in in this country or in Canada. And so I thought it was very important to develop and build a community of those of us who are interested in practicing law in some capacity in order to provide support and nurture people's aspirations and help them figure out how you grow a practice, for example, while you're starting a family or how you manage the stress of being a partner in a major law firm as your parents get older and you assume greater and greater responsibility for their care. Those types of issues that I think are so common in every community, but certainly in our community. Yeah. And so it was a labor of love, even though you know I had my own competing demands on my time, I thought it was something that was worth doing you also ask about my identity and how that's played a role in my career. I've always been proud to be a South Asian and Indian American, proud of where I came from. I'm proud of what my culture has given me in terms of values and and experiences and great food and everything else. (laughs) And so it was very natural for me to want to continue to invest in, in that. And then also more importantly, create opportunities for others, even as my own career started to grow and develop and take off and And so it's just been something I've tried to find time for whenever I can. Sometimes I manage it reasonably well. Other times I fall short, but I'm always trying.
0: (laughs) No, that's absolutely amazing. And speaking to those opportunities and creating those for future generations, what advice do you have for young South Asians who are aspiring lawyers and who are inspired by the path that you've carved out for yourself, traversing all these different paths within the field of law?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, I look at the young South Asians... Entering law today here in the United States, and I think I should be the one taking notes. I mean, it's just incredible (laughs) to me—not just the numbers, but the talent and the commitment and the heart that so many South Asian American lawyers entering the profession bring each and every day. So I'm a little, I'm a little leery of offering any pearls of wisdom (laughs) or grand thoughts. But I will say, since you asked the question, I do worry a little bit that too many of our newer lawyers, whether they're young or pursuing law as a second career, are struggling and they're struggling in large part because law is really, really hard, it turns out. And it turns out that the earliest days and months and years you spend practicing law are the absolute hardest. Yeah, I mean, it is brutal being a junior, junior lawyer in a major law firm, working as a public defender, whatever the case may be. When you don't know anything, you're expected to know everything. And Serious issues stand or fall based on the judgments that you exercise and are, and are responsible for exercising and so my one piece of advice to those folks, my folks, is that you know, hang in there, it does get better law gets more and more fun with each passing day as much fun as I had as a young lawyer doing some interesting things. I've never had more fun than I'm having right now, and so wow. so much of enjoying the fruits of one success practicing law are about making the investments early on to develop the skills and judgments and experiences that really pay huge dividends down the road. Absolutely. And eventually, hopefully sooner than than happened for me, but, but soon enough, you'll really start to feel like you're making a difference and, and really impacting people in a positive way. And that's the best part about practicing law. And it's what keeps me excited and fired up to go do it each and every day, even today.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Paul, and for sharing your story today. I think it's absolutely inspirational and just... Really, one of a kind in terms of, like I said, the different parts of law that you've traversed throughout the course of your career. So, thank you so much for joining us on Trailblazers and so excited to see all that you do, Coinbase, and going forward in the future.
1: Thank you, Cindy. I really enjoyed it. And uh, maybe next time you can explain to me how someone can start a podcast. I'd love to learn how you did <laughs> all of this.
0: Only if you explain the entire world of crypto to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a deal. It's an absolute deal.
0: Okay. Awesome. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.